Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. Welcome to church. If you're new here, welcome to you. Welcome to those listening on the podcast. We get loads of people listening in on the podcast. It's great to have you with us as well. The last few weeks we've been covering this topic here. We do real. We do real. And we've talked about real and authentic church community looking through the book of Acts. And we said that first week, if you want to, if you want to copy something, you need to go back to the original to be as authentic as possible. The way a painter would go back and copy the original painting. If we want to be an authentic church, we want to go back to the very first church, the early church, but the church from Acts chapter 2, and say, what are the things that they were doing back then that we can learn from today? And so we looked at Acts chapter 2, we talked about the hallmarks of a Christ-centered community. How can we be like the early church? And we listed out 10 hallmarks. I won't test you, don't worry, if you were, were there. Uh, but we looked at things like um, the Lord's Supper and eating together, the importance of worship, the importance of teaching, the importance of uh, being people who are seeing miracles and the Spirit of God on the move, of meeting in homes and gathering together, and those different hallmarks that uh, made the church what it was in those early days. The fact they shared everything they had, including their wealth and their finances, with each other, and no one had any need. It's an amazing vision of church, isn't it? And we asked the question that first week, what is the part that you get to play in this great story of God called church? What's the bit that you get to do? And how do you help others to do their part? And then week two, we looked at what is, this is, we've got some great topics, Uh, real disagreement. The early church was an amazing kind of image of what a church could look like. And then within about three chapters, we have a rumblings of discontent. Rumblings of discontent. And this young, growing church will have these growing pains. If you are a growing church or even a growing family or a growing human, you will have growing pains. It's a very natural thing. As churches grow, they have growing pains. And you have this rumbling of discontent. We have that moment with, about Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit, who lied to those around them and said they did one thing when they actually did something else instead. And there was this kind of change in atmosphere within the early church. But we, we talked last week about to be making sure we're watching our heart, making sure when we're in disagreement with someone else, that we look at our heart. Is our attitude good? Are we making sure we stay clean? We keep short accounts. And we talked about from, from being people of good heart, we also talked about being clear, clear what we believed, having a clarity of purpose. When there was those rumblings of discontent, one of the apostles, Peter, stood up and said, well, here's what we're called to do. We're called to preach the word, to pray, and to study. You need to find someone else to feed the widows and the orphans. And they found different people for different jobs. They had a clarity of purpose. You can get sidetracked into disagreements that are nothing to do with you. There will always be rumblings of discontent. And if you're like me, like to fix things, you can get drawn into conversations that actually, that's not for me to do. I need to be clear, what is my purpose? And the last thing we talked about last week was fighting for unity. Unity is God's plan. God wants a united church. His son Jesus, when he was praying in the garden in John 17, his prayer was, Lord, may they be one, as you and I are one. Because then the world will know, the world will know if they see our unitedness, the way we work together, they see the way we care and love for each other. And we saw that in the early church in Acts chapter 2. What's the part you get to play in this uncertain world? 
as the world looks at the church for confidence. So there were the first couple of weeks. We looked at Acts chapter 1, 2, and we got about Acts chapter 6. Hopefully you've all been taking notes. You were up to speed. Good? So we're still in Acts chapter 6. We've had our rumblings of discontent. I love that. And this week, it gets better. We've gone from real church, real disagreement, to real persecution. Real persecution. Real persecution. Real faith will always have a real reaction. People that are full of faith will affect the world around them. If you want to know if somebody has got a real, genuine, authentic faith, they will change the atmosphere of everywhere they go. It will, it will ooze out of them. They won't be able to help bringing change to the people around them. Real persecution. I'm not sure what persecution looks like for you. I remember when I was at school, it was quite a while ago now, um, but I remember being bullied at school. I remember being teased for being a Christian. I remember being told I was a Bible basher, which I always find a fascinating phrase. I've never met anyone who's ever bashed a Bible ever. It just works, I guess, but it's just like, I never bashed a Bible, I just read the Bible. But I would get teased by my friends and I'd be bullied mercilessly, probably because I used to wear badges that said things like, you know, one way. Remember the old, you know, the picture, the, the finger going one way. It's before the National Lottery, you know, it might be you. We had one way. And I'd wear these badges with pride because I was a Christian. I went to church and then I'd go to school and people would be like, seriously, what's wrong with you? And it didn't help the fact that my dad, who was a very passionate, still is a very passionate believer, he thought it would be a great idea to build in our front garden a sign. Not a, not a, not a spiritual sign, a physical, real, the world can see sign. Which, as a child, it felt like the height of the Eiffel Tower. It was massive. And it was in our garden, and it was really tall. And my dad would get a friend who was a sign painter to read, to have words say things like, read the Bible. God loves you. And I lived in the countryside, in, in, on the banks of the River Ouse, a place called Ten Mile Bank, a really long Ten Mile Road. And we would live there, and, and because I lived in the country, we have a school bus would come pick us up. As a child, getting onto a school bus with your dad's gloriously huge sign in the garden saying, we love God, this is a Christian household, and getting on this bus full of people going, morning, morning, what is that in your garden? I was like, honestly, I remember the day the wind blew it down. (laughs) My brothers and I were celebrating and assisting the wind in everything we could because we get teased mercilessly because of our faith and the fact we attended church But I'm not talking about that as persecution. That's mildly embarrassing. It's slightly uncomfortable. It's not persecution. Being persecuted for our faith is not the fact that if I tell someone where I am on Sunday morning, they may ignore me in the corridor at work. That's not persecution. Real persecution is when the world comes against you for what you believe, where there is an absolute kind of fight that takes place between what you believe and what someone else wants you to believe. So when we look at the early church, we look at the book of Acts, there was this ramping up of persecution that took place. There's this moment where in Acts chapter 5, they're preaching in the streets, they're telling the story about Jesus. He's the Messiah, the man from Nazareth who died. He is the Son of God. Who persecuted them? The Jewish leaders, the temple leaders. They called them in. And they told them off. They wagged their fingers and said, don't do that again. We're warning you. 
Three strikes and you're out. Well, what? No, don't do that again. And there's this lovely moment, Acts chapter 5. They left the council presence, and they said this. They left the presence of the council, as the disciples, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They left the place going, we just got told off. Amazing. They were like excited by the fact that they got into a bit of trouble. Ever had that feeling? A little bit of trouble, you kind of start glad about it. Go, yes, we've been noticed. And they've been noticed. And they were told off. But then it ramps up. It gets worse. They get called in again. They're told, what are you doing preaching this mess about Jesus? We don't believe he's the Messiah. And they whipped the disciples. They whipped them. They, they'd rip the clothes of their back and they would whip them to warn them. They said, don't do this. Stop preaching the message of Jesus. We don't believe he's the Messiah. He's not the one we're looking for. He is not the Son of God. We don't agree with you. Things got more serious. So I want this morning to tell you three stories, three stories of persecution, three stories of challenges that people have faced. I want to start with the very first martyr in the Bible, a man called Stephen, Acts chapter 6. Stephen was one of the chosen ones from just last week. Little did he know, within a few verses, things would be going very badly wrong when he agreed to be one of the feeders of the widows and orphans. But in Acts chapter 6, he's appointed as a godly man, going to serve others in need. But then things get worse. If we go to Acts chapter 6, I think it will come up on the screen, um, verses 8 onwards. We're going to jump around a little bit, but it says this. Wasn't it fun watching Lottie grapple with glasses earlier? I mean... I'm at the same place, but if I'm honest, I'm just trying to pretend that I'm not. Just hold it slightly further in a bit of good light, and we'll be okay. Here we go. So Acts chapter um, 6, verses 8. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, um, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders, the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. Then the lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say this, Jesus Nazareth, Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel. Amazing, isn't it? Imagine that moment. Wow. And then for Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives them their own history. He tells them the story of Israel. This is where you have come from. This is the story of, 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 of Joseph and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is the story of coming out of Egypt with Moses. This is the story of taking the promised land with, with Joshua. This is the story of God's goodness to you over years and years and years. This is the story where Jesus is the center of that history. And he tells this story through Acts chapter 7. And then if we jump to Acts chapter 7 verse 51, he then he finishes off and he talks about this, this imagery and this idea about um, God and his desire for his people. And he says this. It's probably not his best move. He says this. You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Now, I know it's kind of old language, but it's not a great thing to say, is it? Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? These are the leaders of the Jewish uh, temple. 
These are people that were seen as holier than thou. They were like the ones who knew all the rules. And Stephen was telling them that they've got no idea. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did. And so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one. The Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. Harsh words. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. Doesn't that sound a bit childish? You know, when your children stick their fingers in their ears, go, I can't hear you. La, 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 la. They put their hands over their ears. They began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city, began to stone him. His accused took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Stephen was the very first martyr of the Christian faith. And what an incredible way to go. At those last moments, we sang, God, forgive them. God, don't hold them to account for this. I don't know many people who could say that when they're being persecuted, when people are throwing stones at you, when the mob is coming at you and you can be calm and so focused on the the God that you love. Really? Would I do that? What would I do? That's my big question this morning. I keep thinking, what would I do if I was persecuted like that? Would I stay? Would I flee? Would I deny? What would I do? And that's the story of Stephen. And at that moment, the church scattered throughout Asia. It scattered across nations. The, the, the word spread, just as Jesus promised it would do in Acts chapter 1. Here's another story for you. This man, a well-known man, you've probably all never heard of. His name is Polycarp. It means fruitful, in case you think some sort of you know, multiples of fish or something. All right, Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. Polycarp was probably the first martyr post the Bible. Polycarp, they think, was one of the disciples of the Apostle John. So he was born around AD 70, and they think he met with John, and John appointed him as the Bishop of Smyrna. And Polycarp was known as a man of authority, a man who loved the Word of God and was a man of the Holy Spirit. He would write letters of encouragement, and there's loads of historical documentation about this man, Polycarp. And he was there at the time of the Roman Empire, and they were fighting back against some of the Christian beliefs. And there came this moment where Polycarp was challenged by the Roman Empire, and he was asked to profess that Caesar was Lord. Will you say that Caesar is Lord? Will you say that Caesar's Lord and no one else is Lord? In fact, it's a bizarre thought for us today, but, but the Romans would not kill people for being Christians. They would kill people for being atheists. Bear with me. Romans believed in many gods. Christians believed in one God. And the fact they didn't believe in their God was a big 
kind of snub to the Roman Empire. The fact they didn't see Caesar as Lord was the massive issue. And often they wouldn't be killed for being Christians, they'd be killed for being atheists. It's a weird language change that's taken place there. And so Polycarp was arrested and they was asked, will you accept Caesar as Lord? He had to take a piece of incense and to throw it onto this statue and to recognize Caesar as the number one. And that's why when people say Jesus Lord is such a, a powerful statement. As an early Christian, you'd be saying, I believe that no one else is important to me apart from this man, Jesus, who died on the cross for me. And so when, when uh, Polycarp said, I'm not going to do that, um, they were like pushing him. They were going to have to arrest you. We're going to kill you. And he, he, wrote, uh, he said these words that was recorded in history. 86 years I have served Christ, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 86 years I've served him. He's done me no wrong. I don't know how long you've been following Christ for. I don't know how long you've been following this decision to, to be a, a Christ follower, a Christian, someone who loves God. But he's never done you any wrong. And yet sometimes we're very quick. Just go, oh, you know, it's not very comfortable. I think I'll just opt out. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And the story goes with Polycarp. They arrested him and they went to, to nail him to a stake so they could burn him alive. And he apparently says, don't nail me. I'll just stand here and I'll trust my God. How are we all feeling on the uh, kind of, you know, the martyr sort of scale here? Who could do that one? Yeah, I'll just stand here. I'll be all right. They set fire all around him. And the story says that he, he, the flames didn't touch him. The flames didn't affect him. He stood there in the middle of the arena, surrounded by the mob, the angry mob, and nothing changed. And this is why the picture you'll see behind me is the picture of a Roman soldier who was tasked to actually finish him off because the flames weren't doing anything. What an incredible moment. And it's been recorded in, scripture, uh, recorded in history by many historians recognize this as the first ever post-Bible uh, writings, uh, uh, first ever martyr, a man called Polycarp, full of the Spirit, full of God, full of who he was. An incredible witness to those around him. The church grew. The church was strengthened out of that moment from this man, Polycarp. And then the third person I want to introduce you to, I want to show you a short video because the sad truth is right now, today, people are being persecuted. And I mean killed, imprisoned for their Christian faith. All around the world, millions of people. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. I want to quickly show you a video. This is from an organization called Open Doors. Some of you will have heard of Open Doors. Um, they're an organization that works all around the world to support um, persecuted Christians in other nations. Have a look at this video, and then I want to tell you about one of the people I met from one of these countries mentioned. Imagine being arrested because you own a Bible or finding that the government has suddenly closed down your church. Imagine being denied education or employment because you're a Christian or being thrown into prison just because you told someone about Jesus. Imagine being forced out of your home because of your faith or living in a country where there's absolutely no freedom of belief. Hard to imagine, isn't it? 
Yet this is the cost of faith for millions of Christians around the world. Every day they pay this price with courage and hope. And these are the top five countries where their faith costs the most. Number five, Pakistan. In Pakistan, an estimated 700 Christian women and girls are abducted every year. Any Christian can find themselves accused of blasphemy and end up in jail or attacked by an angry mob. But even though churches have been bombed and attacked, Pakistani Christians continue to meet together and shine God's light. Number four, Libya. In the lawless state of Libya, militant Islamists attack Christians with impunity. Desperate Christian migrants have been killed or sold into slavery. Yet despite the danger, Libyans are still coming to Christ. Number three, Somalia. In Somalia, just being suspected of being a Christian can lead to instant execution. But brave Christians still gather in small groups constantly changing the location of their meetings to avoid detection. Number two, Afghanistan. There are only a few thousand Christians in Afghanistan and they keep their faith hidden. Anyone known to follow Jesus can face violence from their family or tribe. But even here, people encounter Christ through radio programs or miraculously in dreams. Number one, North Korea. North Korea is number one for the 18th consecutive year. In this land, the leaders are worshipped as gods. Christians are viewed as enemies of the state. Some 50 to 70,000 Christians are imprisoned in labor camps. Last year, I had the pleasure of meeting a, an incredible woman called Hei Wu. Hei Wu is from North Korea. And she had first-hand experience of some of the tragedy that takes place regularly in North Korea. I didn't understand that there is regular starvation. There is a lack of resource in North Korea. And many people are just struggling to survive. And her husband, she tells this story, her husband escaped North Korea, went to China to try and get some help for them as a family, to get food, to get some other way of living, to either escape to a different nation. And while he was in China, he found his faith in God. And he found his faith, and, and he was, but he was discovered by the secret police who deported him back to North Korea. And when he came back, he was put in prison for his faith. And Hei Wu tells this story how she went to go and see her husband in prison, who was in prison for his Christian faith. And she'd, he'd written on his hand, believe in God. And while they were talking in prison, he just showed her what he'd written on his hand because he wasn't able to say to her what had happened. And she couldn't believe, she said, I was really shocked. I didn't think anyone I would know would ever become a Christian, because in the, in the North Korean state, they would encourage brothers to, to tell about sisters, and to speak about parents, and to tell on family members, and everybody would be watching you. Everyone would be a, a, a potential kind of grass, and tell the, tell the government what was going on. And so Haywood tells a story, she met her husband, and he died in prison within the first six months. And she knew that what he discovered was true. She knew it was true, but she couldn't realize why. And she said, I found other people, which in itself is a miracle. You can't go around saying, are you a Christian, to people in North Korea. 
because you can't own a Bible. They have Bibles in plastic bags. They bury them in the ground. They rip out pages and they pass it around so you can memorize Scripture because if anyone catches you, you can then eat the page rather than be arrested for having a Bible. And for a number of years, she met with other Christians and she, she developed her faith in God. And then she too was arrested and she was sent to a prison. She was sent to a camp with, with thousands of other women in this camp. And she tells this amazing story how she planted a church in the prison. And she led other people to Christ. And he said, the thing is, you couldn't tell anyone about Christ in a prison. You'd get, in, you'd get tortured. You'd be even more trouble. And uh, this lovely lady who's now in her 70s, you'll see the picture there, she, um, she would tell people. And the way they set up their church was in the toilets. She said the toilets were so smelly, the guards would not go in. And every Sunday they would meet and they would sing worship songs and they would pray prayers and she'd recite the Bible she'd remembered. She said, but you had to whisper it all. You had to whisper. Because if, if they heard you singing or they heard you praying, they would come in and they would put you into solitary confinement or hurt you in some way. She said, the best times. She said all this with like a glowing face. She said, the best times was when it rained. Because when it rained, all the guards would hide away in the cabins and get undercover. And we could run into the open space and we could sing our worship songs as loud as we wanted to. And nobody would hear us but God himself. Amazing. After six years, she was released from prison and she managed to escape to South Korea where she found help and support from Open Doors. And they've, they've, asked, they've told her story on a number of places. And it's an incredible story. And when you meet this lady who's so serene, so gentle, and yet so absolutely defiant that her God is the only God, even in the face of intense persecution. The, the bizarre thing about persecution is it has a really positive impact, believe it or not. That when the early church was persecuted, it scattered to places it had never gone before. At that point, it was very much localized around Jerusalem. And Jesus said to him in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, you know, you're going to receive my Holy Spirit. And when you do, you're going to go out from here to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. They didn't get very far until persecution came. And then they went, you know what? What do we do? Do we stay? Some did. Do we deny? Some did. Or do we flee? Others did that as well. And the, the message of the good news of Jesus was spread to many, many nations at that point through persecution. Persecution also brings strength, brings courage. When, I've, when I met this lady, Hei Wu, her absolute courage, her I am absolutely committed to my faith, was inspiring. It blew our minds going, wow, we have a bad day at the office and we're thinking about jacking it all in. And you have just been consistent in your faith amongst incredible persecution. I do believe that um, there's, I mean, there's so much going around the world today. I, I don't know if some of you may have seen, I posted on Facebook a, a story from the Guardian newspaper that in China right now, they are closing down churches. They are arresting church pastors right now today. That is a reality. They're trying to control the Christian uh, understanding right now today. In fact, in December, um, something I see, saw on the, the BBC News, Jeremy Hunt, our foreign secretary, has declared the UK's support of persecuted Christians around the world. He said that they reckon there were 215 million persecuted Christians around the world today. Now that's a big number, isn't it? I don't know how you even work that through. And they suggest that 250 Christians are being killed 
every single day on average. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? When we're sort of a little bit like frustrated because someone's giving us a bit of bullying, a bit of teasing. Makes us feel so uncomfortable because of our faith. And there are others who are giving up their lives for this same faith. As I was studying that this week, I was so aware that this book of Acts is sometimes called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. One of the threads that works throughout the book of Acts is this filling of the Holy Spirit. Right at the very beginning, Jesus said, go and wait. And my spirit, my comforter, the one that will encourage you, is going to fill you anew and give you strength and give you courage. That's what happened to that early church. That the, you know, when Peter stood up and preached and thousands got saved because he was full of the Spirit. When Stephen was martyred, his face looked like an angel and he was full of the Holy Spirit. When Polycarp was, was murdered in front of the arena, he was full of the Holy Spirit. When I met this lady, Hei Wu, who'd been in prison for her faith, her face and her whole, uh, you know, kind of the way she put, just held herself, she was full of the Holy Spirit. And if we want to be a real church, an authentic church, a church that makes a huge difference in the world around us, then I want to encourage us that we need to be people that are filled with the Holy Spirit. That it isn't just something like an add-on extra that you could do if you want to. It's completely part of our Christian faith. It's something that's become, become someone's like, an, oh, you can go to a Holy Spirit meeting. You can go get a Holy Spirit refreshing. I believe you are a Christian, that there is no other way to live than being lived full of the Holy Spirit. And my regular prayer, I get up and I pray, God, today, would your Holy Spirit lead me to have the right conversation, to, to know what to do and what not to do? Give me wisdom through your Holy Spirit. It should be part of our everyday, normal, authentic, real activity. That's my prayer for this church. I don't want just a meeting to sing songs. I don't want us to meet and hear words. I don't want us to meet and have great coffee. I want us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because you know what? Great coffee will never transform lives. I love a good coffee. But it won't change lives. I'm sorry to upset some of you baristas in the room. But it won't change lives. But the, the Spirit of God, when he encounters you afresh, will turn you upside down and transform your life like you've never believed it before be possible. For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk. Thank you for listening.